There's a number of studies, I won't bore you with the studies, but basically they asked a bunch of professors what they thought the number one skill somebody should have if they're going to be a creative thinker. And the professors all said creative problem solving. And then they asked a whole bunch of executives what they thought the number one skill is, and they said getting the problem right. And so the biggest challenge I see that people have is they solve the wrong problem. They go all the way through, and it wasn't the problem in the first place. And getting the problem right is really, really hard. You know, as you say that, I think about this idea of like, you know. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part three of our mini-series, the Creative Mindset mini-series with Jeff and Stanley DeGraff. If we could, can we can we jump into these six skills that, that you've got laid out in the yeah. book? Um, we use the mnemonic device CREATE, so it would be easy to remember them. And these six skills were originally skills that I had written about in a, in a hierarchical way, meaning that each skill was more difficult than the previous one. But our publisher reminded me that he didn't want this book to be <laughs> that academic. So we made them all kind of equal. So the, the, first, the first skill, the C in create, is clarify. And that's getting the challenge right, which uh, we could come back and talk about. That's a really important skill. The next skill is replicate, which is mimicking and reapplying ideas. So, you know, this, this is where ideas like biomimicry come into play. The next skill is uh, elaborate, which means uh, multiplying ideas by adding new ideas. So sort of beyond brainstorming. What happens beyond brainstorming? The next level is uh, associate, which is connecting ideas with analogies. So the whole idea of whenever you've got a, a wide array of very different ideas, most of the time, they don't hold together very well. So you use analogies and metaphors to do that. And of course, there's some real challenges if you get that wrong. A lot of research on that. The next is translate, which is telling a good story. Is there a narrative arc? Is there a narrative arc to all of this that actually allows this, this whole array of things that you're doing to hold together? And finally, evaluate. You know, one of the biggest challenges, Jess, we run into is not... Uh, it's not the one that you would normally expect. That a lot of times a, a company will leave the billion the billion dollar idea on the board, right? So how do we make sure that we've picked the right idea, and how do we make sure that we focused in such a way that we can actually move forward with our creative idea and build it? So. <clears throat> When you think about these elements together, you know, it's nice that you've got a whole list so that people can work through them systematically. But can we just, can we pull out, you know, can you pick one of those six and maybe we'll, we'll dive, dive a bit deeper on one yeah. of them? Let's pick one like associate. Associate basically draws on a function that everybody's mind has, which is to think metaphorically or think what's called analogical reasoning. And it's actually pretty hard to do. It's something that advertisers use all the time. So you'll see a uh, a new soft drink and somebody will, you know, somebody will, it'll be a hot day and somebody will jump in a pool and then they'll hold up a bottle of Sprite or whatever it is. And we make that connection. But the problem with analogies is if you choose the wrong analogy, you start to hold things together that don't belong together, right? In fact, there's a couple of researchers at Harvard, their father and son team named Zoltman and Zoltman. Sounds like a law firm. <laughs> and uh, one of the things they talk about is that Companies often pick a metaphor that's not 
that's not a good metaphor. Let me give you the one that bothers me the most. When people talk about the economy, I've, I've been an advisor for the Federal Reserve for many decades. And one of the things that's interesting when they talk about the economy, they'll say, well, it's like balancing your checkbook. Well, anybody knows anything about productively using your money, that's probably the stupidest analogy you can make. It's a terrible analogy. It's a, you know, it's a poverty <laughs> consciousness analogy. You want to use your money productively. And yet people walk around with that because no one has said, wait a minute, let's think through that analogy. That analogy infers a whole number, a whole a host of thinking that's holding you back, right? The other thing about analogies that are interesting is you can turn them around. So I worked on a project that most of your listeners will know called Ecoimagination at General Electric. And this was the first $16 billion spend trying to make everything green. And it was a wonderful project to work on. But one of the interesting things is the first meeting, we were trying to take all these ideas and try and figure out how they held together. And the metaphor that they chose was one that I didn't understand at all. It was NASCAR. How is this solution like NASCAR? Now, I'm a huge sports fan. I'm a season ticket holder, a lot of different sports. I'm just not a NASCAR guy. So everybody explained, you know, how you know, what was the fuel and what was the racetrack and blah, blah, blah. And they went through the whole thing. And then I started asking questions from a naive point of view, which were helpful, which is, well, where is the training of the driver? Where's that metaphor? And they wouldn't have one. I said, okay, now we were going to work backwards because analogies work forward and backwards. So now what is the analogy that we're missing? And so what happens is we use these metaphors to pit, to put things together. Now there's another challenge of analogical thinking. The other challenge is, analogies, unless they're things like birth and death and love, are almost always culturally specific. And they're often generationally specific, right? So if I use a baseball analogy, it's not going to work very well in Indonesia. And if I'm, if I use the analogy that, you know, that's the Cadillac of something, well, you know, if you're 20 years old, <laughs> that's the last thing you want to compare it to, right? So, so that would be an example of, and then there'd be tools under the analogy. There'd be what's called adaptive reasoning. There'd be something called synectics, which is a which is a tool they used NASA used to go to the moon. And there are going to be two or three of these tools under these. We seem to have three. Yeah. And so there's there's a tool. There's videos that go with the tools, and basically saying, but before you do a tool, you have to learn that this is not a step; it's a skill. You have to think in a very different way for this tool. Now, the way it was originally done, Jess. If you think about it from, from the standpoint of replicate, what's often referred to as mimetic thinking or mimicking, this is where biomimicry comes in. You know, this is what animals do it. You know, this is us uh, going into Epcot and seeing the big spore that Buckminster Fuller made, as you know, the, the big dome that you, that you go into. That's copying. But as you move up. Yeah, you yeah. know what? For, for one thing, can we just cover that for folks who are not familiar? It's like when people look at the, you know, the bill of a bird and realize that the shape of that makes it more aerodynamic. So they, they make the new, you know, Boeing 747 look more like that shape because nature already figured out that's an optimized design. That's what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, with it also can be very sophisticated. It's how satellites work when we figured out the orbits of planets and, you know, gravitational. <laughs> so you look at something and go, this is, this thing works like this. What could we do to make it work like this? And the assumption, and it's not always true, incidentally, is that nature is efficient. It's mostly efficient, right? It's highly, it's also highly adaptive, right? Whether you want to talk about Darwin or not, it's also highly adaptive. So the notion is copying something is uh, something that we naturally do. It's how you, as a baby, learn from your mother. And incidentally, we should tell, say that the number one, according to to uh, Alan Greenspan, when I talked to him as a young man, I said, what's the number one indicator of prosperity or growth in an economy? He said the literacy rates of women, because women are the primary teachers of their children, and children uh, mimic, they mimic their mothers. 
right? <laughs> Incidentally, if you have children, you know they don't mimic their fathers, except when they do, then I get yelled at. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, then elaborate is what's often referred to as bisociative, where you're connecting things that are unfamiliar. There's a term for this called defamiliarization. So what I'm trying to get to is for every time you learn a tool, before you learn the tool, you have to learn that your mind is doing a different thing. Your mind has got to be programmed or thinking in a different way for that tool to be effective, right? So, for example, in brainstorming, classic problem with brainstorming is brainstorming will often be done in the wrong way. There's four things we know about brainstorming. I call them the four Fs. The first F, this is from research. This is years, decades of research. First F is fluency. Whoever said one good idea is better than 100 bad ideas never invented anything. 100 bad ideas way better because seven good ideas will come out of it. Point of departure. The second is flexibility. You know, this is the classic, you know, Mayo Clinic and people don't like the way that the, the, the physicians are treating you. So they put the physicians for two weeks in the Ritz-Carlton, and then they put them in their hospital bed for two weeks. So you take something from one idea and apply it to another. That's fascinating. I'm not familiar with that story, but what a clear juxtaposition, Absolutely. Right? And it's, it's, it's one of the things your brain naturally does at a very basic level. Third, the third thing is freedom, what they often refer to as open-mindedness. So here's a great one that's a great tip. You know, when people are brainstorming, if they have an incredibly stupid idea and they want to try it, say yes. Because what will happen is when they run the experiment, they'll correct, right? And if you say no, what happens is you stop the process. And the final one is flow, which comes from a colleague of mine who was at the Chicago for years, Mihai Sitsamahai. And his work basically said, we're creative. It's, we're biological beings. We're morning people or evening people or when the music's on or when... And so the notion is, if you really want to brainstorm, you have to be in the mindset of these four Fs. So if you just say, oh, I'm just going to come up with ideas, you're probably not very effective at this. So each of these have this kind of framework. And as you move through from C to E, particularly R, E, A, T, they become more complicated. Telling a good story, you know, you ever have like your great aunt try and tell a joke, you know, it's hard, you know, or listen to your 10-year-old kid try and tell you a narrative. They're not good because it requires literally billions of neurons to fire in very different ways together. It's like it's like being a game show host, right? It's, it's complicated. So the object in this book is to say, here's the mindset. Here's a whole bunch of tools. Try them. And then you move to the next mindset. And at the end, if you can make something that may, goes all the way through CRAT, you can you can sell it. You can you can build something. And it could be something as simple as you make your life better. It could be also something like here's the new business. Well, and what's funny is, you know, because it's the first time I'm hearing those, they're not implanted in my long-term memory. I'd need repetitions to make that happen, right? But if I got the book or I can get the handout and like a fill-in-the-blanks handout of doing it to myself and like have it as an exercise that our team does together of like try filling in these blanks and what would that look like for us? You know, it is convenient to have a guide and to have a like an objective an objective set of things to push against to get out of the ruts that are keeping us in the group think we probably come from, right? Yeah. And the, the biggest challenge of all of this is actually the first step, which people, there's a number of studies. I won't bore you with the studies, but basically they ask a bunch of professors what they thought the number one skill somebody should have if they're going to be a creative thinker. And the professors all said creative problem solving. And then they asked a whole bunch of executives what they thought the number one skill is, and they said getting the problem right. And so the biggest challenge I see that people have is they solve the wrong problem. They go all the way through, and it wasn't the problem in the first place. And getting the problem right is really, really hard. You know, as you say that, I think about this idea of like 
you know, again, we're also different. So we, we need personalized advice for our given situations. Right. But like the kind of more like visionary entrepreneurs, people who can't sit still, who wave their arms around and are, are good at sales, but forget to send the invoice to get paid. Right. Yeah. Like me. Right. I hear this advice of like, don't just act, think. And, and like that basically like for those highly motivated people, what they don't need is motivation to get off the right. couch. They need motivate, they need motivation to, to like take a deep breath. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I just think as you're saying that, like, I'm a fan of this book, play bigger. It's, it's kind of in that genre of like differentiate, create your own categories. So you can become a category king. Yep. You know, there's a number of books in that genre. Right. And I believe it's that book where he talks about this idea of if you can evangelize the problem greater than anyone else, customers make an assumption that you must know how to solve it right. better than others, which obviously may or may not right. be true. But it seems like what th th there's a relation to what you're saying. Yeah, right? there's a huge relation to what I'm saying. The ability to tell a good story and the ability to build something is completely different. I come back to Steve Jobs. There's a really there's a really fun thing. I have a story around this. I was an advisor on some, some a group at Apple in the old days called AIS, Applied Integrated Systems. This is before the internet. People don't get this at all. And your viewers, well, your listeners will have a lot of fun with this. There was something that was made for Macworld in the mid-1980s. It was called Na Apple Knowledge Navigator. So I'm an advisor on this thing. It's hilarious looking back at it because it's about a 25-year-old professor who's cribbing notes from an older Harvard colleague, avoiding his mother, you know, trying to meet girls, you know, all <laughs> Jeff at 25, right? But what was, what's funny, what's funny. This is the video you guys produced? Apple. It's all over the web. And what is, what's funny is when okay. you look at this, this video, what you're going to see is that things that seem very pedestrian to you, like he's got, a, he's got an iPad and he's using the internet, and then it'll occur to you, the penny will drop, that this isn't going to happen for another 20 years, right? Or does this make sense? It's not going to happen for a while. So Jobs is brilliant at, can I explain what's going to happen? Can I see the future first? But he's not particularly brilliant how I'm going to get there, right? He's not exact. That's the part where people get wrong. And I think Isaacson's book does a nice job with that. So he's saying, I'm seeing stuff. My, he's a natural pattern seeker, which is this kind of a creative person. I'm putting these things together. I'm seeing the future. Here's how I think this is going to come together. And then he's saying, how are we going to get there? And there's a bunch of missteps, aren't there? There's next there's what Scully does with Newton. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, oh, that blowed up real good, didn't it? But, but what he becomes smart about the next time he comes back, whether it's Johnny Ives or whoever, he becomes very smart about these different kinds of people like your brother who can, who can fill in those blanks, who can say, here's how I think it's going to work. And this is a mistake we make. We make the mistake that people who are articulate and have good language skills actually know how to build things because a lot of times they don't, including people like Steve Jobs. Yeah. Um, Stanley, what about you? What would you add to this? Or do you have any stories along these lines? Oh, I think it's just the thing that I always remind me about, about storytelling is always tell our clients and to students that I work with, you know, when they actually do pitches, you know, how do you do actually do pitches? Actually, they teach that at U of M, but in a lot of different places, you know, they don't really know how to do this. And, and so I actually would tell them, this is like storytelling. You have to get the story right. You know, what is the problem that you're trying to solve, right? What's the pain point? Why is it a pain point? And how is it that whatever it is that you're pitching is solving that pain point? And, you know, and that's the whole thing. It's really hard for people to get that. It's easy for them if I give them like eight slides and say, okay, first slide is your team. Second slide is this. The third slide is this. But it, it's it's really hard for them to get that. It's telling a story. Yeah. So what's it, you know, that sounds so simple and yet there's so many nuances to it. 
What what are some rookie mistakes you see when people are trying to, you know, tell the story of articulating their problem when I think, in the situation? Yeah, like I that? think the biggest mistake and that I see all the time is that people are solving the wrong problem. This goes back to the problem issue. Like they they fell in love with this solution and they stick to that solution, but the solution doesn't actually solve that problem that they're trying to solve. They're only looking at the symptoms and they're not digging deeper. I have a few to add to that. One, you don't tell a story in a sequential order. Well, first I grew up and then I didn't. Then we didn't know. It's like shooting a film, you know. <laughs> Ta-da! Here's the thing. And then here's the backstory. And then we cut away. So, the, you know, you have to think. Well, there's a term for this called multi-chronic. You have to think in a multi-chronic way. The second thing is what I call the freshman composition problem. And, you know, I've been on tons of venture capitals, very high visibility venture capital committees, right? And the big problem is the freshman composition problem is they try and put everything into the pitch. Here's my pitch. Here's 60 things in my pitch. I'm like, you didn't edit. This is a terrible pitch. It's it's wrong from the from the inside out. And finally, the big thing about pitches is, you know, it's not just about having an interesting idea. It's about being an interesting person. Right. You know, did you tell the story in a different way? Do you exude confidence? Did you show that you can handle questions in real time? Are you an interesting person? Because, you know, if the notion is it's all rehearsed and you got note cards, I'm like, the first time you encounter anything that's a speed bump, you know, you're not going to know how to deal with it. You're not going to know how to overcome it. So that's what I, what I always tell people too. You are not just selling your solution. You're actually selling yourself. You're selling your team. So how can you convince that person who you're pitching to that you're the right people to do this? And yeah, and, and I think the other thing that I always make them do in the beginning is I make them do elevator pitches because that edits edits down to what is the most important thing that you need to say. They like to talk to her. I'm the old professor. I like to ask questions. I don't like to pass judgment, but I'm very good at asking very pointed questions. But I'm very difficult during pitches. And so the notion is when they get that question, it's like, and I just tell them, when you go up to a VC, the questions are going to get harder than this. Look at, you know, you got to get your glove hand up and your stick down. We're Northern people. Glove hand up, stick down. You know, otherwise, <laughs> I don't have red lights going on. Than that. <laughs> well, you know, I would, I lived in Edmonton during the Gretzky years, so I'm all about that. So, but Stanley, to your point, you know, I think so many of us, you know, besides being charismatic, there's like this, well, I'll just rely on my credentials or my pedigree. And any other thoughts about attracting people to yourself and the team besides the obvious yeah. things you see in everybody's pitch? First of all, a story is it's not going to catch unless it's personal. So you have to tell the story in a personal way. So the problem can't be vague. It can't be blah, blah, blah. It has to be, it, it has to be personalized. This is engine. Engine did this or whatever. And, and so, and the thing is, you need, just need to be yourself. I mean, I think people can tell if you're, if you're faking it, if you're trying to be someone else. And my thing is always be, you know, if you're not comfortable talking to audiences, then maybe you shouldn't pitch. It's okay. You can answer questions or you can, you know, you can support the team in different ways. But if you don't want to do it, that's fine too. But if you do, that's great. I, but the thing is, I make them like practice all the time. I want to, I, I want to build on this, this credibility issue. My big thing is if you come in and give somebody a technical definition of who you are, you're dead on arrival, right? That's, it's nothing. You have to, you don't never lie. You just, but you should look at what you've done in a, in the, from the, the viewpoint or in the eyes of the people who are listening. You're the person that built the such and such program. You're the person that actually helped them get the 5% out of operating expense. So you're somebody. And it's not about 
again, I've just really real problem with the arrogance of, of some of this. But the other side of it is you have to blow your horn enough to let them know I've got credibility here. I know what I'm doing. I'm not here by accident. And the minute you start questioning whether you should be there or not, right, is the minute this falls apart. And I think that's also so, about how can you look at something from a different perspective? Yep. Right. That's yep. that's always how it is. Like, you know, can you not look at it from your point of view, but also the point of view of the customer's point of view, it is that you that that you are pitching to. You know, and people people respond to different ways of of, of uh, persuasion and confrontation. You know, it's interesting to think about this because, you know, I got my first sales job twenty five years ago as a fifteen year old kid, okay? We lived in Alberta, Canada, and they'd they'd cut corn out on the farms and they'd drive it all night. And I, I as a fifteen year old kid, I sat in a corn stand in the middle of Edmonton selling fresh corn. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like I've had sales jobs ever since, you know, even being the CEO of a private equity fund, I just feel like I'm top sales guy, right? And now because of the Jobs Act, it's it's legal to sell on your web, you know, sell an investment, a private investment directly from your website for the first time in 80 years. And I am so used to being able to go to a situation, asking, ask them what they're, how they see their future, what they're looking for, and then selectively present to them the aspects of what we're doing that are likely to be of the most interest to them, right? And now I'm like making these videos that have, like one video has got to talk to a lot of different people. And so this line of like, like our, our first feedback on our video on, on graystokeinvestments.com, like multiple people, multiple people came back and said like, hey, Jess, you don't need to emphasize your failure so much. Like, I get it. You've made and lost fortunes, but I think you're actually going to scare people. They're going to be worried, you know? So maybe, I, maybe he's I disagree back, with right? what your friends are saying. I think the ultimate strength, and I, like I said, I've been over half the Fortune 500 at this point. When you walk in, when you look at the CEO in the eye, the ultimate strength is two things. Number one, tell them about your failures and tell them about their failures, right? The truth is is a very, you don't get to sit in that seat unless you're able to handle the truth. And the second thing is never sell, inform, educate, right? And one, I don't know if this is true for all your readers, but I've, you know, I've, we've done okay, right? We've, we've had a pretty good run. But one of the things that I'll do is I'll go in and say, you know, you're trying to solve this this way. If that's the case, I'm not the best person. Here's the person you should call, right? And a lot of times, you know, and I'm, and I'm serious about it and they'll call the other person, but that, then I'll get a call a year later for a bigger project. Because what you're really trying to do is you're is more than trying to sell, you're trying to build rapport, you're trying to build trust and rapport that you will take good care of their children. You know, that this is why we're here to handle this. I think the problem with a lot of the books about negotiation and a lot of books about sales are more about trying to convince somebody of something. I, I, I So I'm, I'm of a different I'm of a different stripe than that. Well, and I know we're about done with with part three of the mini series here, but I, I would love to get your input on this. So in, in this case, it's the video. I don't actually know who's watching it. So it's got to be for my archetype, right? The the millionaire entrepreneur who they just want to buy long-term financial security. They want like genuinely passive income. They don't want to be a landlord. They just want like mailbox money. They never have to worry about it again, right? And And so like this idea of like telling enough of my story for empathy and for them to realize like, we actually built this investment because this is what we wanted to buy. That's that's why we're doing this, right? Yep. Is we want to go try crazy Elon Musk, Richard Branson stuff, but we want to quit stressing our wives out <laughs> or our spouses out, right? By putting it all on red. And 
you know, there's these kind of things like just don't want to have to worry about money again and want to be able to like really focus on the creativity, try to invent something crazy something without risking it back to zero. When I was young by Bob Robert Quinn, who's one of my heroes who brought me to Michigan. Bob Quinn. Is he the guy that wrote Deep yes. Change? Yep. Yeah, I love yep. that book. He's the guy who brought me to Michigan. He's wonderful. And he's a very close friend of mine. He said, that which you believe is most unique to yourself is that which you share most with others. So when you talk about something that you think is unique to you, Talk about what you learned from it. And what will happen is people will go, that happened to me. I thought I was the only one that did that, right? This makes sense. And you'll have a bond. And it's not, no, nothing false about it. And what you're trying to do is the same thing I said. If you give me your hard-earned money, I'm going to take good care of it. I'm going to give it back to you with, you know, it's almost like a biblical story. I'm going to give it back to you with more more shekels or whatever it is, right? So, well. And my question is about the balance beam of like, in the video, how much do I cover about me and my story versus making the video about them and the product of what it is that's going to give this long-term passive income they should actually trust? Can you make several videos? I mean, can you have a... Yeah, we, and we, that's a good point. ...so that people know what video they need to watch? I, I, I'm on a... Yes, I think that's yes and. I, I would add to that. I think whenever you're making something and selling it, what you're really selling is yourself. And I think you have to include yourself in the narrative. I think that, you know, one of the things I'm accused of in innovation is being a kingmaker, you know, so somebody calls and basically, you, you know, you, you show them how to get it done. And in the process, they even, I don't want to go through all the names, but they become kingmakers, right? You become kings or queens, right? And part of that, I think, has to do with they're selling themselves. And it's less, it's not selling in the sense of pushing, but revealing, informing, giving you a clear idea of who they are and why they're the right person to build. That's great. Well, and anything you want to close here before before we close off on, on part three, anything to sum it up maybe? Yeah, that anyone can learn uh, to be creative. You can learn what type of creativity you're best at, but in order to do it, you have to try it, right? And in order to make it work, you've got to make it work all the way from getting the problem right to picking the right solution. Love it. Okay, everybody, tune back in for our next part here.